You might have seen in the last month, Michael Jordan got married, second wedding for him, uh, and down in Jupiter, Florida on a golf course that uh, Jack Nicklaus designed. And uh, when he did, it made the news because he owns a 35,000 square foot home near the golf course, but on the driving range of the, of the golf course, they erected this, a 40,000 square foot wedding tent. It is called the largest wedding tent in the history of wedding tents, whoever keeps records of those. It's uh, 5,000 square feet larger than his home. It has a service corridor, a separate ballroom, a main event room, reception area, a guest entrance. The sound system for the affair brought in four semi-trailers. There was a dance floor with its own lighting effect system and separate air conditioning units. Bathrooms themselves, which I think are the things on the bottom right, were large enough to host a large wedding themselves. Cost of the wedding was about $10 million. If you had an aerial shot of that same area today, about three or four weeks later, you would see green space. It's gone. The reason it's gone is because it may have been important and it may have been expensive, but at the end of the day, it was a tent. And it's been disassembled. Now, that imagery, that picture, even that word about a tent is the word that God's going to use to teach us something. And he, he teaches us through his word in, through the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. So I invite you to take a look there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 starts today. And Paul's going to use that picture of tents and buildings and make a point. It's going to hit us literally where you live today. I'm just going to read the first four verses to start of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, "Now, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan, And are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, just a quick little review about who Paul's writing this to. He's he's telling this to a group of people. And in Corinth, there is a mindset and mentality. And it really is. I'm not just making this up. It really is parallel to a lot of what we have in American culture and in American Christianity, too. The Christians in Corinth still had bought in largely to this kind of mentality that said, if somebody represents God, if God's involved in people's lives, the way you'll be able to know it, the way you really want Him involved in your life is that He will enhance the quality of your life. Your business will be more successful. Your health will be better. You'll be, it'll, it'll, make, it'll make life work for you. And that's why they challenged Paul, because he was weak. He was ineffective. He didn't have a whole lot of impressive credentials. And they said, how can this guy represent God, they wanted people, just like we want in our culture, we, you go to the bookstore and you look at what sells, it's going to be that which tells you how even God will enhance your life, how you're, you can be in better health, you can be better strength, you can be a stronger person, you can be more successful in a lot of ways. We haven't even hardly challenged the thought that that is what God would say, and God, that's what God wants. And so Paul says, now let's talk about it. In order to do that, he's going to paint a picture visually and he's going to describe what you're walking around in as like a tent a temporary dwelling so he says here's something we know 
if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. He's going to juxtapose two different pictures. A tent on one side and a building on another. That imagery is going to follow all the way through. Now, it's what's probably at the source of this, or at least part of it, is that Paul, the apostle, made a living as a tent builder. He was, he was a fabricator of tent materials. If you read Acts 18, it says that Aquila and Priscilla, who are leaders in the church, and they were, for, they were Corinthians. They were from Corinth, and they did ministry with Paul. They were also in the same industry. They worked together. They might have even had a partnership at times. So this guy knew what he was talking about when he talked about building various kinds of tents. When he talks about that, he talks about a tent being a functional shelter. It is, an, it is something that enables somebody to temporarily operate somewhere and create a hub. By design, it is not steady. It is not durable. It's not permanent. Paul's going to use that imagery and say, okay, that body you're walking around in, you've got to understand right now, it's a tent. Currently in your state, that, that's all it is. It is there as enabling you to temporarily operate and have a hub of operation, but it is by design not going to be steady, it's not going to be durable, and it's not going to be permanent in the form it's in. So he's going to use several words to describe this. And I'm just going to kind of, again, read through them and just point some of them out. If you look, he says, in verse uh, 1, he says, we have... Uh, an, an eternal house in heaven that's not built by human hands. So uh, he's implying that the tent, it's human made. It's produced in human physical means. It is, it's made with human hands. It's, it, it's, 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 he goes on to say that it's mortal. He talks in verse 4, he says, so what's mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. What you walk around in is mortal, which means it's, it's decaying. It's got a, half-life to it it won't it's not going to last forever in its certain form and then he's going to use certain words to describe it walking around in that state means that in a way in our current condition we are kind of unclothed meaning we're not we don't have our permanent structure around us yet he says because when we're verse three says when we're clothed we will not be found naked the implication is there's a kind of a nakedness kind of an exposed state that you walk around in walking around in a tent while we're in this tent, he says, we groan. That's another word gets used. We groan in this tent. He says that we're burdened in this tent. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be clothed in heavenly dwelling. It, it's, again, it says that we're mortal. All those words are describing this tent. Some will say that he's, what he's going to do now is for the sake of the Jews in the, in the room who are, le- who are reading this letter to the Corinthians. He's going to invoke the imagery of the tent that the, the children of Israel walked around with or the tabernacle before when they were walking around. The presence of God was kind of portable and they picked up the poles and they had the ways to do it. And then eventually the temple got built and the temple was supposed to be the more permanent structure. He says, that's the same thing for you as carriers of the Holy Spirit. So then he says, he contrasts that by talking about a building. Verse uh, 1 again. Uh, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. It says, he calls it in verse uh, 4, our heavenly dwelling. It's a permanent picture. It's secure. It's lasting. The words get used there are heavenly, meaning it's, it exists in both dimensions, earth and heaven at the same time. 
it is not built by human hands. It's, it's a sense of being clothed. And it uses a, a word here, swallowed up by life. That, that word is, is, must be a favorite of Paul's because you see that at the end of verse uh, 4? What, what may be mortal may be swallowed up by life. There's this picture that what's going to happen to the tent eventually is something's going to transform it. It's going to change in a way and it's going to get swallowed up by a better kind of life. He's borrowing from Isaiah 25 and he already had done it in 1 Corinthians. When, if, in fact, just a couple pages to your left, but if you don't have it, this is, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, when the perishable has, has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying, this is from Isaiah, that's written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's the, that's the contrast he's got between what we walk around in now and what eventually what we're really craving and longing for. So there's a point that he's making about this. The point to his hearers, remember what their perspective is and where they're coming from. A whole lot of us have been exposed to it too. His point is on, that there's a, the, the, to make a point about the limited focus and importance of the form, the vehicle, the tent, the body now, compared to its full complete form. So he's talking about your physical body. Now, would you just look at your body? Just look at your hand or just look down, okay? Saw a thing about bionic hands in the news, you know, for people who have lost their hands. You've got an amazing instrument there, don't you? You can do stuff. Right? Do something with your, do something, just do something with it. Okay, Not, you know, see, so you told it to do it and it did it. That's amazing. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You can do all kinds of stuff. Stop doing that to them. You, you can, because this is an amazing instrument. But what God says about this instrument that you're walking around in right now, that, you're, that encases you, he calls it a seed. It's not in its final form. Mixing metaphors now. He says it's a seed that has to plant and die to become what it really is supposed to be in its fullest form. I, I mentioned 1 Corinthians. If you, have a, if you have a real Bible and paper, you can turn to your left. If you have an electronic one, you can just spin back 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's going to use that same imagery. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. He's, this is what he wrote to the same people earlier. Verse um, 42. This is how it's going to be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. You know that. It's going to be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Skip down to verse 51. He says... Listen, I tell you, mystery will not all sleep, meaning remain dead. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and, will be, and we will be changed. And here's what's going to happen. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. That's what he says is going to happen. I, I've spent time trying to imagine what this is like. But in the resurrection, what you actually have now is going to be the seed of what you become. There's going to be a DNA correction happen somehow. Miraculously. God, the designer, is going to put corrections to the seed of what we have. The impurities of it and the frailties of it are going to be swallowed by the true life of what that thing is supposed to be designed to look like if sin hadn't come into the world. It's in in heaven... We talked about a couple weeks ago, about 100 years from now. Those of us who know Jesus Christ, who have been reserved a place in heaven, 
if, if when we're together in heaven, you're gonna, I, I fully believe this. We will look at each other and we'll recognize each other. There will be something about how you see the person. And you go, oh, I know who that is. And I think, I fully think that we're going to say, wow, you just got so much better looking. Because something's going to happen in the transformation that takes the frailties and the imperfections and the fact that my nose crooks one to one side and I can't get it to stay there. That's, I think that's going to get corrected. I hope. But I think you're still going to be able to recognize me. I think I'll still be able to recognize you. But we can't imagine what that'll look like in, in similar way to if you look at an adult and you see their baby picture, sometimes you go, oh, I see how that became that. Wow. But you can't look at a baby very often and, and imagine and, and draw the picture of what they're going to look like as an adult. You can't look at this frame that you've got right now and say, oh yeah, now here's the picture of what it's going to look like when it's glorified. But on a molecular level, there will be a transformation happen to what, how you exist right now. God is going to do that. You don't have to accomplish it. It's part of the wonder and the miracle that awaits us. It is, it's the difference between the seed and the full-grown plant. It's the difference between the tent and the building. That's what's ahead for us. So what that means is that this... Right? As good as you might be at moving this thing around, as, as handsome or beautiful as you may be right now, it's not going to last. And this, all this is, is the working model. It's like the first draft. It's utterly temporary. It's far from its fi- final form. Now, some of these carbon-based units we're traveling around in might be stronger than others. Some of them might be a little bit more well-proportioned than others. But you can't get away from the fact that this is what Paul's going to say here is, at the end of the day, it's a tent. Never intended to be anything right now more other than a tent. Oh, tents can be important, but it's not the building. And that's going to have ramifications for what he has to say. Those ramifications have to do with how we perceive a condition we're in, how we prioritize the tent, and what we do with it. So here, here's how, here's the implication that, one of the implications it has. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and the if doesn't mean it may happen, it, says, it means if and when. When that happens, something else will happen. We, we will get, a, a, we'll get a, a building built. But it says in verse 2, meanwhile, we groan. He uses the word groan twice there and in verse 4. Meanwhile, we groan. Here's a ramification of the fact of, of what you're walking around in. We can't not groan. It's impossible for you to live your life without groaning because of the nature of what you're in, because it's subject to decay to death it's flawed it's fundamentally genetically flawed it's incomplete it's not home he so he uses the words like it's like we're naked because we're not fully clothed with what we're going to be clothed with and he says that we're away from the lord the one who is the, the owner and the master of what's inside us you can work on it all you want. You can try to build it up. You can try to make it strong. But you know why? Here's the absolute guarantee you got about life on earth. 
You, you could say how, what your percentages are of getting heart disease or lung cancer or dying of, of whatever it might be or living to a certain age. But here's the one. One out of every one people in this room dies. You will not be able, you can't not groan. You can erect the tent, but the tent will not survive. A few years ago, we decided we wanted to put something on our little back patio. And so we shopped around and we got a, what we thought was a, a pretty good, sturdy tent. It cost us a couple hundred dollars. It looks something like this. This is, uh, I think, the, from, okay, that's what, where's my wife? Is that what it looked like? Where are you? I mean, let's see here. Okay, is that the tent? Where, where, where? Where are you, Marsh? Are you hiding? Oh, hey, oh, behind the pole. Really? <laughs> that's, pretty much, that's pretty much it, right? A couple hundred dollars? And then we drove things into the ground, and we, and we put stuff around it. And then the neighbor, our neighbor, got the exact same model. We had two tents next to door to each other, and we'd smile and wave at our neighbor there under their tent. We enjoyed that tent. And one day a storm blew up, and the neighbor's tent blew over. And it kind of bent it up, and they had to take it down. And we said, oh, man, we have got to reinforce our tent. We put too much money into that tent. So we reinforced how we get it down and we make sure it was, it was secure and we did stuff to try to keep the water from sinking the top of it and all was good, all was good. And then last summer, I was out of town. And you remember that big storm that went through that was like that just wicked winds that come through? I get, my, Marcia tells me that I'm out of town and she and my daughter are outside and the thing is like a horse. They're trying to hold the tent down because it's rocking back and forth and and, and so I don't know what happens. I'm away, and then I get an email, and that email has a picture attached to it and says, here's our tent, and here's the picture. $200. If you get one of those tents, I got to tell you, you can do whatever you want to it. It's going down eventually because it's just a tent it's not a reinforced structure when you translate to that where we live paul says look hey all you people who think you know god's going to come in he's going to make you feel better and he's going to make you successful and you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and and we're going to you're going to god's going to enhance your life understand this you're walking around in a tent and until that we get the the permanent structure that you're going to groan it's just part of living in a tent but there's an absolute assurance he gives it's the assurance that dan was leading us to worship about it's a guaranteed assurance for somebody who's not just trying to earn their way to heaven or just trying to make life work, but they recognize that they are in deep weeds and they need outside help and that the one and only way to be redeemed is through the provision given by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. For the person who goes to the cross and says, I give you my sin and I take your righteousness. By faith, I accept your payment into my life. That person has an absolute ironclad assurance from God that the tent they are in is not the final destination. It is not the final form. That assurance is talked about in chapter, in ver, chapter 5, verse 4, the second part. We do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. And look at verse 5. And it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit to guarantee, to remind us, to keep pointing toward us, of what is to come. 
we could go around today and we could do this in a cell group, tell camping stories. The people who go camping, all have, you all, anybody who goes camping has a story, don't you? And the story is when the wicked thing came in and knocked stuff out and everybody's got a story. Tell that story and let it remind us of something. That what we're walking around in is a tent like that. We have an absolute assurance and a focus that says, this is the seed of what is to come. But until then, hear it, you can't make your tent into a building. And so, as a result of that, Paul's going to call on us to prioritize what we, emphasis we put on the current tent. How much energy we put into it. How much attention we give to it. It'll stand in stark contrast to what the American way of life is, the American focus that says the motto of living around here and even in churches is look good, feel better, live longer. We spend, as a culture, more money on health, fitness, and beauty than any other pursuit of our lives, any other. There's a reason for that. It's because we have allowed ourselves to believe that it's about enhancing the tent. Life has to be about making it last as long as it can, make it feel as good as it can, make it function as well as it can. So what we're told now is that the drug of the future is human growth hormone. You've heard about it, HGH. You hear about athletes using it, but now the prediction is that within 20 years, human growth hormone is going to be as frequently taken as any other vitamin in our culture. Because we will not stand for not doing it. It is a wonder drug. It's this miracle thing. It has all these profound effects. You get better skin from it. It turns back the clock on the aging process. They call it a systems repair. Some have called it the fountain of youth. Some have called it sex in a bottle. Human growth hormone is very expensive, but it builds muscle mass. It strengthens bones. It also might weaken joints. It might enlarge major internal organs. It might cause cancer in mice. But the prediction is still there that within 20 years, the American public will absolutely demand that we all have access to it and regularly, cheaply. Because there's a mentality there. The the primary purpose in life is to extend life on earth to extend the quality of life on earth, to enhance the tent, to decorate the tent, to extend it at all costs. You can make it last. You can make it beautiful. But like you heard up here, but you can't make it home. That's what God's going to say. Because we've confused, the, we've confused the tent, the model, the working model with the building the final form, the final destination, the final product. And it reminds me of the classic Oscar-worthy performance in the movie Zoolander where Derek Zoolander is presented with the possibility that they're going to make the the vision that he wants is a center for kids who can't read good. And they say to him this. Take a look. Without much further ado, I'll give you the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good. What is this? 
What? How can we expect to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside a big? I don't want to hear your excuses. The center has to be at least three times bigger than this. I'm not a camper, but, but those of you who camp, I'm sure would affirm this. When you go camping, you want a decent tent. But the trip isn't about hanging in the tent. The trip is about where you, what you go and do, what you experience, the adventures. If you make the focus the tent, you've missed the whole purpose. In, in 2010, the, the uh, earthquake in Haiti near Port-au-Prince, uh, 7.0 on the Richter scale, and it, and it killed 316,000 people. It also destroyed 250,000 residences. In, on top of the rubble, and, and some of these places still, it's one of the poor, it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, in some of the, I have a cousin who has worked there for a couple of years trying to help people who have been affected by it. And on some of the rubble, they have erected what they call tent cities. And they look something like this. They're like refugees. They're people who just put together some place just to hope to pull their lives together toward where they're going. In those tent cities, there are hundreds of thousands of people living. It's their home for now. But ask yourself, how many of those people do you suppose? How ridiculous would it be if you heard that some of those people were so proud of their tents that what they did was ask everybody to come around, put their resources in and say, I want you to see my tent. Take a look at what I've done with my tent. We can't even fathom that happening because the goal is not to stay in this tent. The goal is to rebuild a life. The goal is to find a place to call home. But a whole lot of us, that's what we do. We put our energies into the tent. Enhance the tent, beautify the tent, make the tent stronger, make it last longer. Because the goal is to make it... Well, you know, you know what the goal is? A, a, an award-winning author, Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize winner for, his, for what he wrote called On the Denial of Death. This, is a, this, this man is an atheist. He thinks religion has a part in this, but he says a central core that's underneath every human being is what he calls the terror of death. He says, we introduced directly one of the great discoveries of modern thought that all, of all things that move man, one of the most principal ones is his terror of death. Then he says, this is where he thinks religion has been concocted. All historical religions address themselves to the same problem of how to bear the end of life. Religions like Hinduism and Buddhism perform the ingenious trick of pretending not to want to be reborn which is a sort of negative magic, claiming to not want what you really want most. He says, The fear of death is natural and is present in everyone. It is the basic fear that influences all others, a fear from which no one is immune, no matter how disguised it may be. He quotes William James, said he called death the worm at the core of man's pretension to happiness. His... Now, this particular author says that religion, all religion, has just been concocted as a way to cope. And what he thinks instead should happen is that people should just focus on making the most out of their lives, 
humanism at its core. And he says, the most any of us can, uh, can seem to do is to fashion something, an object or ourselves, and drop it into the confusion, make an offering of it, so to speak, to the life force. Participate in, in life while you have it. And Paul says, wait a minute. There's another answer. It's the right answer. It's the better answer. It is that there is a real, true God, the author of life, the one who has fashioned these bodies, the one who has a plan for them. And that God's absolute answer is that we will travel in that tent temporarily. We will use what we can from the tent to accomplish the purposes. And then a day will come when the seed of that flesh will form the basis for the building made not with human hands. A building in heaven, a building that will last. Paul says that, here's what Paul says, I know that that's true. We know that that's true. We know it by faith, but we know it. Look at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and we know. And the word there is an absolute hanging on to of something. It is not just a belief. It is placing faith on something that says we have decided and we're betting our life on this. We know that as as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord and we live by faith, not by sight. He says, twice he uses the word confident, verse 6. We are always confident. Verse 8, we are confident. We know it's true, and he says it's a guarantee. Verse 5 is, again, the Spirit has guaranteed it. Jesus was talking to people all the time about this and said, there is a truth. The question is, do you know it and do you believe it? In John 11, talking about the resurrection, Jesus said this, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he threw this in there. And and this had to throw people when they heard this. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. They don't die, they're just transferred. The seed just simply gives birth to its full form. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? If we believe it, it will change the way we think and act. Joseph Bailey, who is an old author who had all kinds of death in his life and wrote out of that pain some profound things. But he said this. He said, in light of the promises that await us, it's a mystery that we Christians go to the medical extremes that we do to hang on to life. That difference between viewing the tent as a tent and viewing it as a building is at the core then of a handful of things that Paul says this will change the way we act. It'll change the way we think. First of all, it gives us confidence over fear. You saw again that word confidence is used. We live, verse 7 says, we live by faith, not by sight, and we are confident, I say. So much that he says we prefer, we, we may not understand it, we may not see it fully, but we, we will prefer what's coming. There's a confidence the significance, what, what that means is the significance that we attach to the current decay we're under, the way our bodies break down, the way they, they don't, the limitations we have, that significance will be diminished. We'll have confidence because we know it's just a tent. It's supposed to break down. It also means it'll change, it'll, it'll make us have faith 
oversight in how we, well, we, how we behave. We won't be consumed with what we see with perfecting the tent. There's this, again, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. I think I've got a section here for, that I want to see you that ties right into this. He talks about what we do now that we have the tent. Here's 1 Corinthians 3. No one can lay any other foundation than the one that we already have, Jesus Christ. Now, anyone who builds on that foundation may use, and here's some building materials for the building, right? Not the tent, the building. And you can use gold, silver, or jewels. Or you can try building with wood, hay, or straw. But there's going to come a time of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has done. Everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but like someone escaping through a wall of flames. We live by faith, not by sight. And what that means is that we, by our actions and thoughts, we're we're sending building materials ahead. We're not focused on what we're doing now as much. We're focused on what we're sending ahead. The question I, I have to ask myself then is, Am I sending anything ahead? How do I send building materials ahead for the building that's not built with hands that I can't see? I do that by living by faith, by by reflecting the character of the builder, the agenda of the builder, by living for him. And so the the other phrase that gets used is we, in verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. This is very, really simple. I mean, it's a question I can ask myself today that you can ask yourself today. Is what I'm doing in the tent driven by a desire first and foremost to ask what pleases the builder? What pleases him? We make it our goal to please him, to say that which would please him to hear, to do and behave in ways that would please him, that reflect him, that would represent him well that speak truth for him, that convey the love and grace that he has. When I do that, I'm sending materials ahead. But it's really important to Paul, because he's going to close this with verse 10, to help us understand, just because the tent is temporary, just because it shouldn't be the focus, doesn't mean it's not important what happens in the tent. Oh, it's still really important. What you do with the body is very important. Verse 10 says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Bema seat is, is it was a Roman, um, the, the Roman authorities in different areas, it was like a place of judgment. They, they would have a specific, it's like sitting on a, a, a dais of a judge. Jesus appeared before a, a, a Bema seat when he was before Pilate. Paul bef- uh, appeared before a Bema seat. And he says, now there's going to be that kind of reckoning with the builder, with Jesus himself. And he says very clearly, we must all appear there. That each one may receive what is due him. For the things done, and look at the phrase, while in the body, while in the tent, whether good or bad. It pictures a coming reckoning for all believers, it says we are going to give an account about how what I do with the tent. Not did I make it last longer, did I make it look good or smell good or more attractive to people, but did I accomplish in the tent that which he considers good? 
moral directives. What he considers good when it comes to my behaviors, my actions, and what I do in his name. What it's designed to, to do. You know, we, we want to say, and I absolutely believe this, I am saved absolutely by grace. There's no condemnation left for me. I will never face condemnation. But I will face some questions. I will face some recompense. I'll, I will be asked, what did you accomplish with what I gave you while in the tent? When I bring this home to where I live, what that means is it, it, a shift needs to happen for me. A shift that says, I want to take the emphasis off the tent and onto the building. A shift that says, I'm going to submit the tent. What it does, what it touches, what it tastes, what it pursues, how much energy is put into it, what it accomplishes. I'm going to shift that and submit it, the tent, to his purpose. When that day comes, I think there will be celebration and there will be joy. But what we do now has a bearing on what that day will turn out to be. Paul's invitation and ours to you today is to ask yourself, and maybe, maybe the exercise this week is to present your tent to its rightful owner again. Do a little inventory and say, what, what am I doing with this tent? How much effort am I putting into itself? And am I accomplishing its purpose? And perhaps for some of us, that means a radical shift can happen so that the tent brings glory to its maker in anticipation of a building that won't be built with hands that will far surpass it. All right, let's pray together.